From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. In the midst of a global health and economic crisis, what can Congress do to make Coloradans more financially secure? We ask Senator Michael Bennett. Then, as people who are pregnant navigate the health risks of COVID-19, they're also missing breastfeeding classes and baby showers and the small moments with friends and family. I was really looking forward to having them like see my stomach move when she stretches. I can't share those moments with them. We talk with three pregnant Colorado women about what's making them anxious and what's giving them hope. And if cabin fever is getting to you, maybe it's time to disappear into the pages of a book. We've got some good recommendations for folks of all ages set in Colorado and the West. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Congress extended its recess to May 4th in an effort to keep legislators from spreading COVID-19 to one another. Yet lawmakers must continue to combat the global health and economic crisis. What further assistance can people hope for from the federal government? That's what we're asking Senator Michael Bennett. Senator, welcome. Thank you for having me. First, how are you and your family doing during the pandemic? We're doing fine. Thank you very much. We're all well and we're at home. I'm it's a miracle from my perspective because all three da- of my daughters are, are at home too or back from college. And as much as I'm grateful that they're here, they wish they weren't here. Mm-hmm. So that's, um, I hope you're doing well too. Thank you. Glad to hear y'all are well. A listener tweeted us with a question for you, quoting here, So many people are out of work and need more than $1,200 in expanded unemployment benefits to weather this. Senator, what is the single biggest or most immediate thing Congress could do to make Coloradans' lives more financially secure right now? You know, I I actually propose the most aggressive direct payment program to to Americans of of any member of Congress. And and it it proposed the um, additional direct payments uh, in in the amount of $2,000 to start. We did $1,200 in the recent bill. My bill imagine that we continue those payments uh, in part because it's going to it's taking us so long to set up uh, the unemployment system across the country because we've got 50 different unemployment systems with 50 different uh, systems of software, many of which are 50 years old. So it's critical for us to be able to keep people on their feet until we get the unemployment stuff set up uh, and, and then all, obviously ultimately until people get back to work. And those stimulus payments are going out right now, but what's something looking forward that Congress could do? Well, we could do it again. There's no reason why that has to be the last stimulus payment. And if we if we think there's going to be a gap between those payments and unemployment insurance, as I believe there would be, that the right thing to do would be to pass another uh, another iteration of that stimulus. One of the biggest measures people are looking for toward is the next economic stimulus package and what that might look like. The Paycheck Protection Program could run out of money by the end of this week, and that's a loan designed to provide a direct incentive for small businesses to keep workers on their payroll. Republicans and Democrats in the Senate are at loggerheads over a GOP proposal. In general, Republicans want to pass a package with $250 billion for small businesses. Democrats want that package to also include additional money for state and local governments as well as hospitals. Where do you stand? Uh, I agree that we di- we should increase the Paycheck Protection Program 
but we also have to increase our payment to state and local governments who are suffering and uh, and to make sure that our hospitals uh, get the support that they need. You know, it's interesting. The history of this is pretty clear. Mitch McConnell had a trillion-dollar bill that he put on the floor and said, take it or leave it. This is the last package and accused Democrats of paying, playing politics for 48 hours as we tried to improve the bill. By the time we voted on the, on that package, it was not $1 trillion. It was $2 trillion, and it included $150 billion for our state and local governments. McConnell's bill had zero. It included $150 billion for our hospitals. McConnell's had 70. And, uh, and, and the reality was, in the end, 96 senators supported the bill because it was comprehensive. I think that's what we have to do again here. Mitch McConnell is trying to hold uh, the Senate hostage, as he often does, and I don't think that's tolerable in this situation. Um, our, our, the citizens of Colorado are desperate for help that we can bring them, and we need to bring it to them soon. And Republicans are saying that assisting small business needs to be addressed first and quickly because the Paycheck Protection Program is so close to running out of money. What's the next step for lawmakers to reach an agreement on the next stage of the economic stimulus? Well, I think that, first of all, it's a great irony that that's what they're arguing, because I, among others, argued that the the small business plan was much too small the first time, and Mitch McConnell and the Treasury Secretary capped it at $350 billion. So, now, what was utterly predictable, um, they're now um, complaining about. So what I wish they would do is understand how desperate the needs are for everybody. Our small businesses, absolutely. Uh, our state and local governments, absolutely. Our systems of higher education and, our, and most important at the moment, um, the critical needs that our frontline workers need in our, in our hospitals. So the key to being able to do this is exactly what we did the last time, which is to bring together a package that can get 96 votes, not just the Republican caucus. And with this kind of partisan entrenchment right now, are we even going to get another economic stimulus package and win? I believe we will, and sooner, much better than later. I, 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 we are still, look, the last package was $2.2 trillion. It's the largest, largest package in American history. You mentioned the Paycheck Protection Program. It is true that a lot of that money has been committed. It's also true that a lot of that money has not yet gone out to small businesses because of bureaucratic inertia. And it's also true that there are many businesses across the state that don't have access to pre-existing banking relationships who are not getting the benefit of the PPP system. And that's deeply unfair. Many of our women-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses, Rural businesses have been shut out at the at the window. So I think we've got to make it work well. We've got to make it work better. And we've got to increase the amount of money in the fund. And I'm glad you mentioned rural businesses. You've signed on to a letter with Colorado Republican Senator Cory Gardner asking the Treasury Department to ensure that small and rural areas receive their fair share of federal aid. Tell us a bit about that concern. Well, I wrote the letter because I was deeply concerned that uh, rural Colorado and rural America was being ignored by the by the stimulus package in some fundamental ways. The PPP program we just talked about for small businesses, very worried that rural uh, firms have not had the same access that urban uh, companies have had access to. Uh, the, the letter that I sent to Treasury with Senator Gardner uh, asked the Treasury Secretary 
to interpret liberally small small l liberally provisions in the bill that um, that that people put in the the last COVID bill that said that state and local governments could only spend the money that they were sent on COVID related expenses. If you are a county commissioner in this state, there isn't anything you're dealing with right now that isn't a COVID related expense. And what we were pleading with the Secretary of Treasury to do was have an interpretation that allowed them to be able to, to the extent possible, use that money to backfill lost revenue. Our, 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 our uh, counties have lost revenue in this recession to a far greater extent than in the last recession, but we have not yet come up with the funds to cover it. And so they need as generous uh, an interpretation as possible. I think actually we were successful in that, and we're going to seek guidance from Treasury along those lines. I've also been working with John Barrasso, who's our neighbor to the north, Republican senator from Wyoming, to ensure that um, uh, our rural hospitals are protected. Since 2010, 119 rural hospitals have closed down. Uh, uh, in, in, in 2019, the United States had the largest shutdown of rural hospitals in our country's history. We were on track to double that in 2020. So uh, our bill would provide immediate relief for rural hospitals with emergency grants up to $1,000 per patient and stabilize the loss of revenue with emergency grants equaling the total reimbursement received over a three-month period. You know, the rural hospitals have had to give up their entire revenue because they, they haven't been able to do elective procedures. And we've got to find a way to keep them afloat, both for us to deal with COVID, but also for the economic um, implications of rural Colorado. Now, the federal government makes all sorts of rules about what agencies can and can't do. A lot of them affect how environmental policies are shaped, for instance, and those rules would normally involve a lot of public input and meetings. You've asked the Trump administration to pause rulemaking that's not related to the pandemic because concerns about the virus make it difficult to get public input right now. What are you worried the effect of changing federal policies during a pandemic could be? Well, as you know, the, the Trump administration has been on a mission since it got there to, to, to tear up every single environmental regulation that it can find, including ones that were not only popular and not only necessary from a climate perspective, but actually supported by industry, like uh, the rules to capture fugitive methane, uh, which originated in Colorado or the rules to, to, to on our uh, fuel efficiency standards, which he's now ripped out, I guess, in an effort to have the United States make uncompetitive automobiles. And I thought it would be very unfortunate if they pursued this this um, line of um, effort in this agenda, in this anti-environmental agenda, when it, at a time when nobody can public comment, nobody can comment publicly on the rulemaking. So. I wrote to the Office of Management and Budget asking them for a pause in federal rulemaking during the crisis so that we could ensure that, at the very least, we had robust public comment. Now, it's sort of hard to comprehend right now, but we are still in an election year. Will you endorse a candidate for the Colorado Senate race? I have endorsed John Hickenlooper. I think that he has a, an, an incredible track record as uh, a two-term governor of Colorado, a very successful mayor of Denver, and and a, and a very successful business person. It seems to me that, particularly in a moment like this, where you've seen the kind of egregious mismanagement 
out of the White House of this national crisis, having people in Washington that actually understand how to run something and have real experience having done it in the private and in the public sector would be very valuable. So that's why I've endorsed, endorsed John Hickenlooper. Thanks for joining me, Senator. Thanks so much for having me. I wish everybody well. Democratic Senator Michael Bennett speaking with me about lawmaking during a global pandemic. We heard from Republican Senator Cory Gardner in late March. When we come back, pregnancy in the pandemic. We'll talk with three expectant moms who find themselves dealing with things that they never expected. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Karen and Mark from Denver. Our family is always given to Colorado Public Radio through payroll deductions. When I moved on to part-time teaching, our giving didn't make the transition. Working from home now in these strange times, we agreed it's the best time to correct that. CPR's COVID-19 coverage is smart, up-to-date, and compassionate. Please join us in keeping Coloradans connected by giving to CPR.org. Hospitals have gone into overdrive to treat patients infected with COVID-19. For expectant moms, there is fear and anxiety about their safety and what will happen on delivery day. We spoke with three Denver-area women who are pregnant about their concerns and their hopes. Anna Temu Otting is the Immigration Campaign Coordinator at the ACLU of Colorado. She's 21 weeks pregnant. Lauren Harvey is the legislative liaison at the Denver Department of Human Services. She's 31 weeks pregnant. Gladys Ibarra is the campaign manager for Colorado Immigrants' Rights Coalition. She's due any day now. Gladys, we weren't sure you were going to be able to participate in this interview because your due date is so soon. As you approach it, what's your biggest concern? My biggest concern is that, you know, I will go into labor and um, my husband will not be able to accompany me. Um, I know that we've seen New York that has probably the the craziest um, situation right now around COVID um, isn't allowing anybody in in the room, in the delivery room with um, people going into labor. And I guess I'm just, yeah, very worried that my husband won't be able to be there with me through the, the process. That's huge. This just I think that illustrates how disruptive this is in so many ways, just the normal things that we associate with childbirth and pregnancy. Um, so we're going to get into that particularly a little bit later. This anxiety of the unknown has been powerful for so many of us during this pandemic. Add being pregnant on top of that, I can imagine that it's a lot of pressure. Lauren, how are you coping? You know, I really am just trying to take things day by day, I think. Um, and I do read and listen to the news, but I try to limit that somewhat. Um, I think you can read some only so many stories about, you know, unfortunate things that are happening before you start to get too much anxiety about it. And it's just best to, you know, move on to something else. So I really just try to take it day by day and really rely on um, my husband, who is such a great support and really keeps me grounded. What about for you, Anna? I go back and forth between being really anxious to feeling like I'm doing okay and being safe inside my house. Um, And it's also a bit of a metaphor for how I'm thinking about my baby coming into this world. I think of 
him being safe inside my body and me being able to do everything that I can. But as soon as he comes out, I'm, you know, nervous to what kind of world he's going to come out to. And so I feel my best when I'm at home inside. Do you also have concern about catching the virus yourself? I do. And it's a a big panic that I have every single time that I step outside, whether it's I'm walking my dog or I'm going to the store. I actually can't, I haven't been able to go to the store for the past week because I'm, I just get really big anxiety attacks that my husband has had to um, go grocery shopping or um, friends and family that live nearby will just pick up any essentials that I need and drop them off at my door. Um, But it's been very hard to, to go outside. That's a lot to be juggling. And then you talked about this a little bit earlier, Gladys. But in hospitals in Colorado right now, pregnant people are permitted one support person who doesn't show signs of COVID-19 infection. Under non-pandemic circumstances, Gladys, you would have had your mother there in addition to your husband and perhaps your sisters. What was it like for you to find out that you would only have your partner and these fears that maybe even he can't come with you? I think in a way it kind of made my decision easier. I mean, I come from a very big family. Um, Like I mentioned, I... I didn't know, um, you know, my sisters, my mom and my husband, but I think, um, you know, narrowing it down to this is a moment that I will share with my husband. And um, ultimately, it'll be, you know, he and I in this journey with with this baby um, more than, you know, my my immediate family. But it's still very similar to Anna, you know, having that anxiety around not knowing if that will still be the case once it's time to to go into labor. Right now, I feel comfortable because I probably have left my house maybe three times in the past month. I feel like my baby is fine. But once I go into labor and not having my husband there, that's probably one of my biggest fears just in general, because this is our, this is my third pregnancy, but it's my first viable pregnancy. So we've never made it this far. And I just can't imagine getting there. And not having him to to support me or even, you know, even seeing his face um, or holding my hand through the whole thing. I, I really can't imagine that right now. And what about you, Lauren? Yeah, I think, you know, echoing both Anna and Gladys, just it's hard not to have anxiety about what could happen and not and the unknowns. And I think one big thing that I've been concerned about is if I somehow developed COVID-19 that after delivering, I would not be able to see my baby boy and hold him. Even a coworker at my office unfortunately had that experience that if you have tested positive and you give birth, they most likely are not going to have you around your newborn because it's dangerous for them too. So, you know, knowing that they're doing it to protect the new little guy, that that would be really difficult. Are you worried about the potential of contracting the virus while you're at the hospital? I am. I do still feel that giving birth at the hospital is the best option for me at this juncture. But I do have that concern. Yeah. Have any of you considered a home birth or going to a birth center rather than a hospital because of the pandemic? I did some research and, you know, I talked to a few people. Um, so I feel like, yes, the hospital is a hot spot, but also 
I think that that's going to be the best, the best bet. Also just, you know, reading and hearing about the amount of home births that need to be taken into a hospital um, because of complications, uh, just the idea of something going slightly wrong and needing to rush either me or my daughter to an emergency room. Um, because I know that at least for the labor and maternity areas of the hospitals, they're all separated, at least in the hospital that I'll be delivering at. Thanks so much for sharing that, Gladys. Anna, you're a little ways out from your delivery. This month was supposed to be your baby shower and you had to postpone it. What has that been like? You know, I saw recently an encouraging message of feeling grateful, being able to feel grateful for everything that you have, the ability to stay home, the ability to work from home and still maintain an income, but also feeling disappointed by not having those special gatherings, those special moments. And I'm in between both. Um, My crib just arrived yesterday and my husband's going to put it together soon. But I still feel so sad that I can't share that moment with my family. And I've looked at my friends' baby shower pictures. I've like gone back and stalked them a little bit. And I see pictures of um, people with like the toilet paper band test um, to just kind of people can guess how big you are. And it makes me happy that they were able to share that moment. But it makes me really miss being able to share that with my loved ones um, this month. Yeah. Lauren, what about for you? Yeah, it's a similar situation. We did obviously cancel our baby shower. That was scheduled for this month. And we know it's the right thing to do for everyone's safety, for my own safety, for my baby's safety. And I think, you know, it's been kind of a roller coaster of emotions around, just like Anna said, being very grateful that right now we have our health, we have, you know, our home that we can be in and we're able to work. And so we're very grateful for that. But it's a bummer. I mean, there's not really any other way to put it. It's just a bummer not to be able to celebrate it um, with friends and family, especially for this first baby. But I think everyone's been really generous and and helpful in saying you have to just be kind with yourself around whatever emotion you're feeling, whether you're feeling grateful or you're feeling upset or emotional today. It's We all are having situations like that, pregnant or not, because of this crazy world we're living in right now. So just trying to take it again day by day and trying to balance being grateful with also just kind of being bummed out. We're speaking with Anna Tumu Adding, Gladys Ibarra, and Lauren Harvey, three Colorado women navigating pregnancy during a global health crisis. Anna and Lauren both canceled their baby showers. I asked Gladys what she's had to give up during her pregnancy because of the novel coronavirus. I think one of the things that I'm starting to really feel, at least this week, I just started my maternity leave from work. And in any other time, I would be hanging out with my sisters and my mom. You know, they'd be helping me get the house ready, um, get my hospital bag ready, and just relaxing, um, enjoying some girl time. But I I guess that's, that's the hardest. Um, I spend most of the day alone since my husband is still working. 
And so, you know, I'll FaceTime them, I'll text them, but it's definitely not the same as having them around. And uh, this is the first grandbaby on my side of the family. So I was really looking forward to having them like see my stomach move when she stretches or feel her kicks. I think earlier in my pregnancy, when I first started uh, feeling the movement, I would get really excited and hope that other folks could feel it too. And now that it's very like visible to the naked eye and she's, you know, there and so big, I can't share those moments with them. Um, So I think that's one of the biggest things that I'm definitely missing out on. And then also just thinking about the postpartum care. Um, My mom lives like, you know, five minutes away from me. My sisters also live relatively close. And um, just knowing that they may not be able to come be that support for me um, as I'm discharged from the hospital and, you know, come home and and start to heal. Um, I know I have my husband to rely on, but um, it's also, um, I just feel very, like, lucky that I have siblings and I have a mother who in any other time would be, you know, so present and just such a big uh, support for me. And I don't know that that's going to be an option anymore. Um, I don't know how long we'll have to wait until they can meet her in person. And so it's all just very heartbreaking, to be honest. Um, I try to just focus on the fact that, you know, similar to to what these other ladies have said is I have a home and, you know, we have income. Um, But coming from, you know, a Latina family, um, my family is just like such a big part of my identity that it it's really just heartbreaking to not be able to share these moments with them right now. And that's so hard to anticipate not having the support that you thought you were going to have. What about classes or hospital tours? Yeah, so actually um, at at the hospital that I'm expected to um, deliver canceled all of the classes and all of the tours before we were able to to come in uh, for any of that. So Currently, we are relying on, like, YouTube and other websites to, you know, get an, have an idea. Um, I think, personally, I've always thought about breastfeeding as something coming so natural. But after hearing from some of my friends who are new mothers, um, I found out that that's not the case. Um, you know, a baby may not latch on right away. And there's techniques that are supposed to help. Um, and so just knowing that I do need that extra, you know, bit of knowledge um, until I have the experience, that makes me a little nervous. Um, I was hoping to at least take some breastfeeding classes and CPR, um, but I, yeah, I, I was unable to. So it's, a, it's making me a little nervous. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I think I'm capable and I'm confident that I'll learn a thing or two from a video, but there's definitely no, I don't know, no substitution for hands-on practice. Yeah, it's a really different experience to be sitting in front of your home computer instead of actually in the class. Um, There are these dramatic fluctuations between feeling overwhelmed and panicked and trying to stay calm and grounded. What's helped you maintain some balance, Anna? I, the, I've found the biggest solace from, um, just talking to my mom 
um, and just hearing some of her stories about when she was pregnant and hearing that her and I are having very similar experiences. Um, but the biggest thing that has kept me grounded in all of this is my baby. And I think it's very beautiful that he is still growing. He is still thriving inside my body. And it, it makes me very proud to be in this new era of life that's persisting and um, resisting any sort of virus that's going on in the world. Um, it makes me realize that we're going to be okay. Um, you know, no matter what hurdles come our way, um, our bodies will still be able to um, create more life and that the life growing inside of me is still pushing forward. That's beautiful. Lauren, how about for you? Yeah, you know, um, I'm about two months out from my due date, and I think right now I can feel my baby boy moving a lot and all the time. And sometimes that's just that reprieve from thinking about other things, just feeling in my own body and, you know, this little human that I'm growing that I can just feel him moving around in there. And um, it makes me feel like he must be doing great because he's kicking me so hard right now. Um, so I think just taking those moments to myself to just block out everything else and remember that, you know, I'm growing a human and that's really amazing. Um, and we're going to get through this. Um, and of course, talking with friends and family most every day is so helpful. And again, kind of keeping me grounded in things that are not related to all of the other virus and everything going on. As first time moms, how are you all feeling about bringing a new person into the world? Gladys, why don't you start? I don't know. I feel very lucky, to be honest, especially with my history of miscarriages. It's it's just a big blessing, um, you know, regardless of of my religious beliefs or, you know, any any higher power. I just feel very, very blessed to have this opportunity. But at the same time, I feel a very big responsibility um, just seeing you know, how not only this country, but the world is kind of at this very um, strange place. Um, I just feel a big responsibility to to protect my daughter, but at the same time, make sure that she knows that, you know, this world is, is for her and um, she, she will be welcome. And um, yeah, I just, I feel very, yeah, very lucky and very blessed. Anna? Um, I echo what Gladys said. I feel a very big responsibility to bring a, a kind person into this world, um, someone that's going to love this world as much as I have. Um, and of course, I feel anxious and I feel nervous and it's uncertain, but I still have the idea of seeing my baby grow up, watching him become a rebellious teenager, seeing him meet someone he loves, 
going to his wedding, like all of those images of seeing another person grow in this world still haven't left my, my heart. And so, um, that, that feeling and that passion of, of seeing someone grow up still, uh, overshadows any sort of pandemic going on right now. And Lauren? Yeah, certainly in the very near term, I feel that kind of anxiety and nervousness, just generally even, you know, giving birth is going to be a whole new experience um, and a difficult but very rewarding one. But long term, it is just envisioning all the things our little boy is going to do. And, you know, my, when my husband and I will take walks, we'll say, oh, man, baby boy's going to love coming to this park. And I bet he'll love going on that slide. And Someday maybe he's going to play soccer here and always just thinking ahead of all those wonderful things ahead makes me very hopeful and excited. And I just really look forward to seeing him grow up. So, you know, it's obviously worth it despite this short-term anxiety of what might happen in the next few months. Well, Anna, Lauren and Gladys, I want to thank you all for sharing not just your concerns, but also your hope. Thank you so much for letting us share that as well. It's nice to talk about that, too. That's Lauren Harvey, Anna Timu Otting, and Gladys Ibarra. They echoed the concerns of women who are pregnant throughout the United States. We reached out to Dr. Rania Khan, OBGYN, at the Centura Littleton Adventist Hospital, and Aubrey Tompkins, Director of Midwifery at the Seasons Midwifery and Birth Center in Thornton. At Centura Hospitals, like most hospital systems in the state, pregnant women are permitted one support person during delivery who is not showing signs of a COVID-19 infection. Dr. Khan says she has been reassuring her patients as much as possible that they're taking every precaution necessary to keep pregnant women, their support people, and their infants safe at the hospital, which includes wearing protective equipment and limiting visitors. Here's Dr. Khan. Yes, we might look different. And they have less visitors and we're wearing more gear, but their experience should really be the same as it would be without the coronavirus. She added that while moms may feel nervous about the potential harm of a COVID-19 infection for themselves or their babies, the best available data shows that pregnant women seem to have the same risk as adults who are not pregnant. And infants are susceptible to catching the virus after birth, but it's unclear what the effects may be on them. If pregnant people test positive, Centura hospitals are following CDC guidelines, which recommends that women continue to breastfeed while wearing a mask and maintain good hand washing and hygiene. At Seasons Midwifery and Birth Center, pregnant women are permitted multiple support people in the delivery room, but they are also screening patients and support people for signs of COVID-19. Tompkins says that for healthy, low-risk pregnancies, birth centers are a safe alternative for women, especially during the pandemic. Her center has seen an increase of patients in the last few weeks. We are continuing to have people wanting to transfer to us. I think because the global pandemic is just really highlighting for people um, that the hospital might not be the best place to go when you're healthy and low risk. Another concern of pregnant women during the pandemic is the risk of postpartum mood disorders, including depression and anxiety. Gladys from our panel said she struggled with depression after miscarriages, and she's concerned about her mental health after her baby is born. Tompkins says this is a concern for providers because isolation can contribute to developing a postpartum mood disorder. There are some lifestyle kind of modifications, some supplements, some vitamins. Um, working on a sleep plan is really big 
um, particularly in the first few weeks postpartum. So again, reaching out for the support in the community is really important, and your provider can be a really good um, resource for that. She recommended an online resource called Postpartum Support International. One way to clear your mind in isolation is to engage your imagination. When we come back, books you might want to read, all with a Colorado connection. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Uncertainty is all around right now, but you can be certain that CPR News has what you need in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic or any time. I'm News Director Rachel Estabrook. Keep up with the latest on the public health situation, the unemployment crisis, and stories that have nothing to do with the pandemic that will help us all remember the wider world out there. Tune in for news and analysis on the radio and sign up for the Lookout newsletter at CPR.org. Thank you for tuning in to CPR News. Books can be good companions, especially in this age of social distance. So we called our favorite book experts to give us some great reading ideas for life in isolation. All of the books have connections to Colorado or the West. Bethany Strout is the buyer for the Tattered Cover Bookstores. Welcome, Bethany. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Also with us is Nicole Magistro, owner of the Bookworm of Edwards. She joins us on the line. Hi, Nicole. Hi. Nicole, let's start with you. You have an eclectic mix of books for us today. The first one I wasn't quite expecting, but it makes sense. It's a running book. That's right. It's called Run to the Finish by Amanda Brooks. And this is a fantastic book uh, for those folks who are trying to get outside and get some exercise or who are stuck inside and can't find a way to burn off that nervous energy. Um, I love the opening lines of this book. Uh, Amanda Brooks says, This book is not for the elite runners. It's for me and for you and for the 98% of us in the middle of the pack to know that it's fine to be just the best runner you can be while juggling work, family, friends, and still enjoying that delicious slice of pizza every Friday night. (laughs) Um, I just love her sense of humor in this book. And throughout it, you'll find fun lists for everything from like sneaking in more vegetables to your diet to hilarious signs seen along the road uh, during running races. My favorite one I think uh, I laughed the hardest with is a sign that says blisters are braille for awesome. (laughs) So um, if you're trying to get outside and uh, or get some extra exercise, Run to the Finish by Amanda Brooks is fantastic. So again, Run to the Finish, the everyday runner's guide to avoiding injury, ignoring the clock, and loving the run by Colorado author Amanda Brooks. Bethany, changing gears here, you've chosen a novel that's set in the American West. It's called How Much of These Hills is Gold. Tell us about it. Yes, this book by C. Pam Zhang is, in my opinion, a blazing new addition to the mythic literature of the West and really should sit right beside Lonesome Dove on anyone's shelf. It follows two orphaned siblings, Lucy and Sam, as they navigate the promise and the curse of the gold rush. And as the siblings say, what could almost make a girl laugh is that Bob brought them here to strike it rich, and now they'd kill for two silver dollars. The language, I have to say, used in this book is exquisite, and Zhang really brings to life a story of the West that is too often written out of our history. Lucy and Sam are Chinese-American, and Sam is someone who today might identify as trans or non-binary. This is a piece, uh, to me, of mining history. It's an adventure story, and ultimately it's a search for home. 
So again, that book is How Much of These Hills is Gold by C. Pam Zhang. Nicole, we all need a laugh at a time like this, and you'd recommend a memoir by a Colorado author. Tell us about the author and that book. Yes, uh, Telluride author Barry Sonnenfeld uh, has written a book called Call Your Mother, Memoirs of a Neurotic Filmmaker. Um, Barry Sonnenfeld is certainly not a brave person, uh, but he's very funny, he's very honest, and he doesn't really care if people think he's brave or not. Um, He's best known for his work directing um, that show, Series of Unfortunate Events, uh, based on a book, of course. And um, he's also handling the cinematography for a bunch of Coen Brothers films. Um, This book has plenty of anecdotes about stars and directors he's worked with. It's very dishy, but it's also really gripping about his crazily warped childhood. Um, You'll laugh and you'll cringe, uh, find it impossible really to stop reading, no matter how gory the details get. Um, And I think it's weirdly comforting, especially for anyone who's sort of in an in-between time, perhaps those who are finding themselves home but still in college, or those who are interested in history or filmmaking. Um, Just a fantastic book, uh, great humor, and you'll really lose yourself in it. It seems sort of like there is some uh, bravery even in that kind of honesty. That book once more is called Call Your Mother, Memoirs of a Neurotic Filmmaker by Barry Sonnenfeld from Telluride. And Bethany, you have a book, A True Story, about a Colorado family of 12 children. Talk about Hidden Valley Road. Yeah, so this is just an incredible piece of nonfiction. Uh, The Galvins are a Colorado Springs family who had 12 children between the years of 1945 and 1965, and half of them were diagnosed with schizophrenia. So that's six children in one family. Robert Kolker, the author, is an acclaimed journalist, and he treats this story of this extraordinary family with care. Uh, This is a book, in my opinion, about three things. First, of course, it's a book about mental illness. A figure I found shocking in this book is that an estimated one in 100 people are affected by schizophrenia, and yet the knowledge we have about it is so limited still. The Galvins grew up through half a century of treatments and psychiatric developments, and the scientific investigation that this book brings to life is really fascinating. Um, Second, it's a piece of Colorado history. The Galvins are fully woven into the fabric of this state. Um, There are so many anecdotes that I could go back to, but the one that really stuck out for me is that one of the sons played in the opening band at the infamous 1971 Jethro Tull concert at Red Rocks. Um, Third, and most importantly, and maybe most significantly for the time we're living in right now, it's a book about living through trauma, how to find grace with each other, and what is able to be forgiven. And again, that book is Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family by Robert Kolker. And you brought something for kids as well to keep them busy while they're at home. Nicole, one of yours is actually a deck of cards. (laughs) That's right. It's called The Monkey Mind Meditation Deck, 30 Fun Ways for Kids to Chill Out, Tune In, and Open Up. And this is a deck of cards um, produced by a Colorado author and a Colorado publisher, uh, Shambhala. And uh, Carolyn Kanuro is a wonderful uh, compiler of activities and sort of moments of grace for kids to turn inward and handle some of the difficult emotions that they feel. Um, of course, right now, worlds are turned upside down and children are adjusting, but um, this might be a helpful tool 
for a family um, or a child to kind of take a moment out um, to meditate a little bit. And uh, some of my favorite ones are beautifully illustrated. Um, the Friendly Firefly is one of my favorites right now. Um, in each card, there's a key phrase and then a few things to think about. And for the firefly, the key phrase is, be a light in the darkness, just like a firefly, even if you are small. You can be a light in the darkness. I really like that. Um, Bethany, you have another suggestion that's interactive for kids. Yeah, um, there's a new activity book called National Parks of the USA Activity Book uh, by Claire Grace. And I would say this is aimed probably for 7 to 10-year-olds. Um, has activities like code breaking, spot the difference, lots of stickers, all focused around our amazing national parks. I just really can't stress enough with this one how beautiful the art and design of the book is. And I think it can serve as a time filler, but also a reminder of the natural beauty that awaits us all. And just briefly, Bethany, you also brought a novel for middle schoolers. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so Prairie Lotus by Linda Sue Park um, is a wonderful new novel. She is really one of the most acclaimed and best-selling children's novelists writing today. And interestingly, this is an excellent counterpart to How Much of These Hills is Gold. Uh, the author wrote this book sort of as a response to Little House on the Prairie series. And Hannah's story is one of a half-Chinese girl living with her white father in a small western town in the late 1800s. Um, it details, you know, her life as an outsider, her dreams to become a dressmaker and run her own life. Mm. It deals with prejudice and unfair laws, but honestly, it's a really comforting story and exploration of life in the West. Thank you so much. Again, Prairie Lotus by Linda Supark. Bethany and Nicole, thank you for joining us. Thank you for thank having you us. So much. Nicole Magistro is owner of the Bookworm of Edwards, and Bethany Strout is the buyer for the Tattered Cover Bookstores. They joined us to offer their recommendations for books to read. We have all of our recommendations and more at CPR.org. While we're on the subject of books, we want to tell you about something new for readers of all ages. It's called Turn the Page with Colorado Matters, and my colleague Ryan Warner is here to tell us about it. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Avery. So what's up? Well, in normal times, we tape an episode of Colorado Matters in front of a live audience in a theater. That happens several times a year, and it's a way for people to feel closer to the show. But that's just not possible right now with big gatherings canceled. So we dreamed up a virtual alternative. And it's built around reading. Indeed it is. We want Turn the Page with Colorado Matters to outlive the coronavirus, by the way. Three times a year, we'll choose a book to read together. We'll give you lots of notice so you can get a hold of the book, read it at your pace, and then you're invited to a video chat with the author. Your questions will help shape the discussion, which we'll record, and you may make it onto the show when we broadcast the event. Tell us about this first book. So we chose a book that different generations can read together because it occurred to us that if you have families hold up together under the stay-at-home order, um, you know, this is something you can all read together. But if you have families separated, grandparents from grandchildren, you know, aunts and uncles longing for connection with nieces and nephews, they could read this too. We chose a middle-grade book we think adults will enjoy as well, All the Impossible Things by Lindsay Lackey, who grew up in Colorado Springs, and I'll let her summarize the plot. All the Impossible Things tells the story of Red, an 11-year-old girl in foster care in Denver, Colorado, who accidentally causes tornadoes when she's upset. She goes to live with new foster parents, and even though she resists getting attached, she can't help but fall for them 
or for their petting zoo full of rescued animals, including a 400-pound tortoise named Tuck Everlasting. Red is counting down the days until her mother is released from prison. She collects impossible things, such as bumblebees being able to fly, in an attempt to prove to her mother that there is a difference between hard and impossible, and that it isn't impossible for the two of them to be a family again. It sounds a little heavy. You know, I think it does, but it's full of magic and hope and inspiration, and I think those are all things we can use right now, Avery. So how do people get in on this? Well, get a hold of the book. It's available online through our partners at The Tattered Cover, but you may have another bookseller you'd like to support. And then join us for the Facebook Live event May 20th in the early evening. No risk of botched bedtimes. Uh, The event (laughs) is free. You can find details and registration at cpr.org slash turn the page. We've also just tweeted the information at... Colorado Matters. And again, the book is All the Impossible Things by Lindsay Lackey. Thanks so much, Ryan. You're welcome, Avery. My colleague Ryan Warner unveiling a new project, Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. And thanks again for joining us today. You can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play the podcast Colorado Matters. Again, that's play the podcast Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.